Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. seemed like a pretty sleepy kind of low number of races uh, primary night going into a midterm election. There were uh, just contests in a few states, uh, Florida, New York, uh, you know, f- few others. But it actually ended up having some pretty interesting results, not necessarily results that will have a um, immediate impact necessarily on, you know, who's in office. But for the thing that a lot of people are very focused on right now, which is trying to get some understanding of what is happening going into the midterm elections. Uh, If you're, you know, if you're a political obsessive, that's always going to be something you're focused on. But in this cycle, it is uh, particularly the case because everything is kind of upended. Usually we have a, a standard set of metrics that we that we follow to say, okay, you know, this party's going to have a good election, that party's going to have a good election, but they're really kind of all pointing in weird directions. On the one hand, you have unemployment, which is, you know, really the most fundamental measure of the economy for how people experience the economy is at the lowest levels that it has been at in the modern era more than 50 years. And again, you get you get much further back than that. You don't even have the same level of record keeping. So, you know, for a very long time. Uh, at the same time, for most of this year, people have been saying the economy is terrible. And we know at least some of the reasons why, because there is uh, inflation that very well, most people alive today have not seen inflation at this level during their adult lifetime. You have to go back to the early 1980s to see something at at this level. So we know all that. Uh, And then you have certain things like, you know, just the basic thing that uh, president's party, first midterm, president's party doesn't do well as a a basic rule. You have the fact that Joe Biden has been very unpopular by historical standards, even for the kind of slump that new presidents all, you know, kind of go into all that kind of stuff. And we've spent most of 2022 expecting a, a wave election. President's unpopular. Everything's still kind of broken because of COVID. You've got high inflation. You've got all these different kind of things. And yet, and yet, that doesn't seem to be how it's working out. 
there is a general consensus now. I, you know, you don't have to be looking through, um, you know, rose-colored glasses or through the prism of hope to say that, again, pretty much a consensus. There is no red wave. It's, you know, maybe a red ripple or a red slosh, right? I think most people agree, odds on, Democrats are probably going to hold the Senate which was not seen seen as at all likely until you know in, until relatively recently and we've seen some of that movement of expectations uh for the house i think where most people are you know most people who are kind of experts on this stuff would say that republican how republican prospects for a certainly for a blowout or even kind of like a big win have diminished a lot but most people are still saying they are very much, you know, likely to to gain control of the house, probably by th- by a narrower margin than anticipated, 10, 15 seats, something like that, but probably still going to win. But things have changed a lot. So this all brings us to uh, what happened last night. So there is a, a district um, in New York, which is going to be uh, remapped for, you know, for the November election for the, you know, for the new um for the new uh, for the new Congress, but here in New York, uh, Congressman Delgado, who was uh, you know one of these guys, I think he came in, I think he won first in 2018. Uh, I don't think 2016. I may have that wrong, but I think 2018. Uh, what was a kind of maybe slightly Republican leaning district that a Democrat took over larger trend in New York State. In any case, he just was appointed to be lieutenant governor of New York. So that seat came open. So you have one of these cases where on the same election day yesterday, you had primaries for the November election, and then you had a special election for the last three or four months of Delgado's term. Okay, all those different things going on. So you had uh, a guy named Pat Ryan, who's like one of the county county chiefs in one of the counties in in uh in that in that district one of the counties kind of a little beyond being a suburb county of of new york city but still in the same general area uh and then uh another guy named mark molinero the republican uh also county executive of one of the counties i should know this i apologize uh, uh my colleague kate will probably will probably know in any case here's the thing Charlie Cook's report, Cook report, calls this a dead even district, exactly even between Republicans and Democrats. Everybody agrees that Mark Molinaro was like the perfect Republican candidate for this district. County executive, uh, you know, not some Republican crazy, uh, but, you know, enough to appeal to those people. There's a lot of rural areas in this district. So, if this is a Republican wave year, Molinaro is going to win that thing 55-45, a pretty, a pretty decisive win. And in almost any scenario that people have been foreseeing, he should win that race. He didn't win that race. Pat Ryan won the race. And it seems like the final, the final, um, the final result would be like 52-48. Close, but a real win. Okay. So, that has gotten everybody's attention because that result is not consistent with a GOP wave election. It's not really a wave of any magnitude. That looks more like 2020, 
looks like that kind of political environment, one that was good for the Democrats, not as good for uh, congressional Democrats as it was for Joe Biden, but the kind of political environment that's kind of like a jump ball in political terms, right? Maybe advantage to the Democrats. Now, added to this is that we have now had five special elections for the House. You know, there's a vacancy. You have a kind of a little uh, impromptu uh, election to fill out a term. Okay. We've had five of those since the Dobbs decision, since Roe v. Wade was overturned. In all five of those cases, the Democratic candidate, whether they won or lost, outperformed Joe Biden by at least two percentage points. Now, these are all low turnout elections by definition. They're primaries, like in the middle of the year, middle of the summer, whatever. So you can't say, okay, this is the percentage and it's going to every race in, in you know November is going to be like that. You can't say that. But again, those kind of results are not at all consistent with any kind of GOP wave scenario or even one where the Republicans have a big advantage. So that has really gotten everybody's attention. Now, there's one big factor here, and that is that, you know, for most, uh, most of the 20, 2020, 2022 redistricting, Democrats kind of, to everybody's surprise, were kind of holding their own at least holding it own, maybe even kind of making, you know, making some progress on the redistricting front. But then very late in the game, Republicans, in some cases, basically by defying state courts, got big wins in New York State, Ohio, and Florida. Those are key redistrictings that mean that Republicans seem to have a certain amount of gains just locked in. Now, I would say that uh, if it were not for, if we were running the, the 2012 through 2020 map again in 2022, with what we have seen in these special elections and just all the other factors we're looking at, I think you'd have to say the House is like a jump ball or close to it in that ballpark, right? Either party could take it, but it's not the same map. You do have a map that is substantially more difficult uh, for the Democrats, but you know, what we saw last night is basically, I think this is a fair way to put it. Um, what we saw last night is that it's possible Democrats could actually have a better environment for Congress than they did in 2020. And so the assumption that we've all been operating on, you know, at best, they'll kind of, you know, get this, get the same level of support, but it'll be against a worse map. Maybe not. Let's be frank. I, I still would say the odds are definitely against the Democrats for holding the House. But it looks a lot more possible now. And this isn't just me, you know, looking through the looking at the looking at the facts through the prism of faith. Everybody's seeing this. Everybody's seeing that the that the uh, that the political environment looks substantially different than what almost everybody thought it was in the spring. And there are a number of factors there. One is that there has been Inflation appears to have crested. There has been a substantial drop in gas prices, which is the thing that most people see, right? Whatever the big kind of global metrics are, people see that like, wow, gas is like $5 a gallon. That's happened for, for in terms of democratic enthusiasm. You have uh, the IRA, the, you know, the kind of mini BBB Act. Just today, uh, 
President Biden just, you know, finally did this this sort of uh, student debt relief issue. But the big thing I think is Dobbs. That has changed things dramatically because obviously that is uh, an existential issue for a lot of people in this country. And beyond the issue of, I think even beyond the issue of reproductive rights, it has catalyzed this sense of like, how did we get to a Supreme Court that is suddenly in charge of everything, right? That we're kind of just bystanders for what this kind of stacked court decides. So, that is what we're going to t- discuss today. We're going to get into a lot of, you know, we're going to talk about uh, New York 19, uh, which uh, among other things, my co-host Kate Riga uh, knows a lot more details about than I do. We're going to get into that, a bunch of other races. And that's what we're going to talk about. Maybe a couple of couple other interesting questions towards the end of the episode. But before we get to that, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Surprise, surprise. It's peak ice coffee season, that wonderful time of year when you start planning your next ice coffee order while you're walking home with your current ice coffee. And it's all fun and vibes until you get your July credit card statement. Luckily, there's no need to go cold turkey when saving money is as easy as switching to cold brew. With Grady's Cold Brew Bean Bag Kit, you can brew 36 servings of refreshing New Orleans-style iced coffee for just a buck a cup. That's a major savings compared to buying at your local shop. Plus, you'll have a fridge stocked with coffee when you next get, when you next get a big craving. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, uh, Kate Riga, what is up? So I think we should kind of start with doing a little backstory on the debacle that was New York redistricting this year, because we're going to talk about a few of these primary races and none of it would have happened or would, you know, none of it will make sense without this kind of foundation. So basically what happened is New York is one of the very few states where Democrats have the ability to draw lines in a way that kind of ekes them out some extra safe seats. And the reason for that is in a lot of other states that are kind of traditionally Democratic dominated, they have handed that power over to independent commissions, you know, and that is part of this kind of you know, the idea that gerrymandering is bad and undemocratic and a a good government push. So in some places, you know, people have kind of accused Democrats of unilaterally disarming, kind of choosing to use these panels that will do a more, you know, a more fair division of districts, whereas Republicans, as we know, do not take that approach. And everywhere that they have power have eked out the most potential seats they can have. You know, it was such a it was the story in Texas this year that they didn't really give themselves more seats because they'd already given themselves so many seats last cycle. There just weren't any more to give. So in New York this year, it took on a lot of importance that Democrats would have to scoop up like, you know, four or five seats to kind of have some a bit of a firewall against the Republican gerrymandering. So New York Democrats do this, you know, fairly aggressive gerrymander. Some people said that that they went so far as to give courts no choice but to toss the map, which I'm not as sold on. But so they do this aggressive gerrymander. Republicans kind of shop around for the judge that they want, which has become an increasingly common practice, especially in in these kind of right wing lawsuits. And it's worrying for a whole lot of reasons. But they basically found this one guy in this super rural 
County, which is actually closer to Ohio than it is to New York City. But they gave him the case and he kind of acquiesced. He's like, yep, this is a super unfair gerrymander. You're right. Blah, blah, blah. And Democrats still weren't even that worried because they were like, well, they're they not going to be able to kind of shop super sympathetic judges all the way up. Right. So then now we'll take you to an appeals court. The appellate court also said that the map was an unfair gerrymander and then went up to the next court, the highest court in the state, who a split decision, but also said it was an unfair gerrymander. And rather than give the legislature the ability to kind of fix some of the more egregious lines like some other state courts have, they just went right to a special master and had some guy at a college, you know, kind of just draw the districts himself. And that has engendered a lot of criticism, not just from the people who want, you know, kind of the optimal map for Democrats, but also because the way he did it kind of split a lot of ethnic enclaves and didn't really take into consideration the more intangible stuff, like the the kind of spirit of the city, you know, like what groups have just historically been clumped together. We just made so, everything a square. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> basically that's it. Yeah. yeah. So that's the map that we got, which to Democrat chagrin made New York State one of the very few to become more competitive after this round of redistricting rather than less. But it just unfurled chaos on this map. You know, it thrust incumbents into the same districts. It just, for the Democratic Party, it was just catastrophic, you know? So a lot of these races last night, the campaigns were vicious. The decisions were cutthroat. It was bloodthirsty. And that all is a direct ramification of this redistricting. So I guess we can start with kind of one of the banner races that was last night, which was Jerry Nadler versus Carolyn Maloney. Nadler is chair of... Let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Is they're both from, they both uh, came in in 1992, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. Are there any, are there any, any, uh, uh, New York Republic or New York representatives who've been there longer? Are they like? That's a good I, question. I can't think of any offhand. I mean, it's it's you know you don't have like the Charlie Wrangles. I mean, it's weird to think. I mean, on the other hand, that's thirty years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, but they certainly. I don't mean to interrupt, but I, no. I th- those may be two of the most senior members of the of the delegation. Yeah, I, I really can't. Well, there's no one upstate who's been there longer until relatively recently, like in in the city you had, I can't remember what, I think Elliot Engel wasn't that far back, but I don't think so. He's gone too. Yeah. So. And so, so yeah, so these are like the most senior members, two of the most senior members of the delegation, maybe the two most senior, and they had to fight it out. Yeah. And they had positions kind of befitting that seniority, which is, you know, Nadler was chair of House Judiciary and Maloney is chair of House Oversight, two of the most powerful House committees. And they'd been friends, you know, they came in in the same class, they'd been there for ages, they've represented kind of neighboring districts for much of that whole time. And they apparently had like one kind of tepid conversation on the House floor where they were like, OK, well, you shouldn't run in the new district. You should just run over here. And then there was like, no, you should run over there. And then that was about it. And then the knives freaking came out. Vicious, vicious. I mean, Maloney in particular was just going around saying that Nadler is you know, senile. He's, quote, half dead, that he's just like not able to do the job. And I think that was kind of enforced by when they had a debate, these two, and this uh, younger attorney 
old Obama campaign staffer Patel, uh, they had a debate and Nadler like sat while the other two stood. And he is definitely, you know, he's had health problems. He has arthritis, whatnot. But I mean, vicious, vicious stuff. I mean, they both must be in their mid-70s. Yeah, actually, Maloney's a year older than Nadler, but he is, I mean, he's definitely, I think, showing visible signs of age. I don't think anyone would contest that, but, you know, it's it's not the kind of attack you lodge when you're trying to preserve a personal relationship. You don't come back. You don't come back from that, (laughs) especially when you say it's one thing to say someone's in in poor health, but when you talk about mental acuity, that's Mm -hmm. really, you don't come, you just don't come back from that. Right. But yeah, I guess Jerry then, Nadler doesn't need to come back from that. Right, yeah. <laughs> and then right. Nadler's camp kind of did more of the the thing is like these two people have very, very similar voting records. Right. So he had to go back to like her vote on the Iraq war to find something to criticize her about. And then there was also, you know, an unsavory undercurrent from his camp where I guess she's just kind of weird and says weird things. And then, you know, the most vaccine acute, stuff has the yeah, vaccine yeah. stuff. But even other than that is just kind of like kooky, but they were insinuating that that kookiness has some overlap with a potential drinking problem. So we're talking about <laughs> I, I had just, I, I, <laughs> I had actually missed a lot of this stuff. I knew it, I knew it was, it got nasty. I didn't, I didn't know um, all of the details. And, and then simultaneous to this, as you said, there's this, there's this guy, um, his name, I believe his name is Suraj Patel, yep. who, uh, you know, youngish guy, probably under 40, uh, worked for Obama. And I think he ran also, I guess, against one of them in Maloney. 2020, yep. against Maloney in 2020. And his whole kind of thing is these, you know, these two are dinosaurs, uh, you know, um, and he, he got some traction because I guess, you know, both of them have been not you know, kind of cheerleading enough for Biden and don't and and more generously to him, don't get sort of early 21st century politics where you're not some soul on kind of, you know, dispensing wisdom. Everything's a fight. And, and, you know, if you're not fighting Republicans, you're losing. So at the same time as the two of them were having their own kind of knife fight, you've got this other guy saying, hey, both of you are totally too old and should leave. Right, exactly. And so that's sort of the context. Yeah, so at the end of this, oh, and, and another interesting part of this is that in the kind of last waning days of the campaign, Chuck Schumer inserted himself, which I thought was really interesting, both because, you know, a guy of his stature, most important person in the Senate, like tend to kind of stay back, especially in a primary, especially behind these two kind of high wattage House members. And then on top of it, that's what every basically every other kind of big New Yorker did, you know, Gillibrand stayed hands off. But Schumer jumped in and endorsed Nadler in these last few days. Um, and, you know, Nadler did kind of help Schumer out earlier in his career. So I guess it is some you know, payback. But then Maloney just was like, well, it's the old boys club. You know, that's why you need a woman and blah, blah, blah. And then the New York Times editorial board ended up endorsing Nadler. So that stuff happened towards the end. And as we know, Nadler won handily. Maloney only finished with very like doubled her her, her amount. She got 24 percent. Nadler had 55. And then that other guy we were mentioning, Suraj Patel, got about 20 percent. So she got smooshed really smooshed. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, that it is, you know, kind of in the context of, you know, given that, 
you know, at this point, oh God, I'm, I'm trying to remember when he beat Al D'Amato. I think it was in 1998. Um, so, Chuck Schumer's been in the Senate for like 25 years at this point, mm-hmm. um, been there for a long time. He's the majority leader. He's just, it's even beyond all that stuff. He's just a kind of a, you know, just a kind of a kingmaker type guy in the context of New York politics. So someone like that is, you know, he's almost like the daddy of the delegation, right? Mm-hmm. That he's not going to choose between the kids kind of thing. <laughs> so it did surprise me. Like, it's one thing for him to kind of, you know, maybe make clear in informal ways who he's supporting, but to, to come out and endorse, uh, wow, you know, that was a surprise. And, and it's funny, I mean, and this is, as I was telling uh, uh, Kate before we started the episode, uh, I've lived in this part of New York City for about 20 years now. And when I first moved here, the district was Jerry Nadler. And then in 2012, that switched over where it was Carolyn Maloney. So I had both of them uh, as as representatives. And my just general impression, and again, I'm not an expert on either. Maybe this is shortchanging Maloney. But Nadler has always been one of these guys who's big on, you know, the big presidential questions and during the Iraq war and the U.S. attorney firing thing and Trump and democracy. And Maloney has always just struck me as more of kind of a not a machine politician, but just kind of a reliable vote for the Democrats and, you know, completely fine. But that Nadler, I don't know, just kind of someone who operates at a higher level. I don't And again, maybe I'm totally wrong. That's just kind of my my impression. And it, you know, he he demolished her, which really surprises me um, because, I mean, you wouldn't say he's like a dynamic figure. <laughs> no. I mean, not really, right? <laughs> um, so uh, I was going to say, you know, it's almost good for Carolyn Maloney. She's not going to be in Congress anymore because there'd be a lot of awkward conversations. <laughs> Seriously. Right. In the, in the cloakrooms and stuff. But yeah. there we are. Yeah. So, you know, that was a that was a big one. Another one I wanted to talk about is that because of this redistricting, Sean Patrick Maloney, who is kind of the head of the House's, uh, you know, DCCC campaign stuff, he was suddenly in a much more Republican district than he was before. So he chose instead to run in a different, friendlier district, which, oops, already occupied by this freshman, Mondaire Jones. He's young and black and gay and kind of like, you know, and a, a progressive politician, all that kind of stuff. So that in itself caused a bit of an uproar. You know, AOC, I think probably most prominently called on Maloney to resign as the chair of the D-trip because their whole shtick is we don't make life harder for incumbents, right? Because the whole purpose is to try to pick up more seats. And here he is kind of putting that aside when it comes to his own political fortunes. And And I guess the idea was, is that he could probably hold on but why right. make it harder for himself? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, poor anyway, Jones. Let me, who, let oh, me yeah. um, and I apologize. I just want to understand one more thing here. Mm-hmm. It's not that they put him into um, Mondaire's district. It, mm-hmm. it, basically, that his district took on more of those rural conservative counties out, you know, an hour plus past New York City um, and gave up 
some of those inner suburbs, maybe even part of the Bronx or something like that. So it just be it it kind of shoved his district further north, made it more conservative, and he just kind of hopped over and took the sort of the 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 bluer part of what was his district, and it left. Uh, what's uh, the, the what had been the incumbent sort of out of luck. Right. And so Mondaire Jones basically has to find somewhere else to run. So instead of, well, decide, I guess that's kind of the question now bullied out of running in his yeah. in his own district. So he moves on to a much more competitive open seat. Um And like, you know, his kind of vague claim is it's where Stonewall is. So he says it was a a youthful haunt of his and he feels very connected like a spiritual home kind of thing so messy 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 and just in the context of just for for our listeners Mm -hmm. in the context of new york city these are very different districts i mean this is like i was representing maine but my heart's in arizona so i'm (laughs) i mean again it's 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 almost like you know it's almost like opposite ends of the city Right. So then after all this, what happens is Sean Patrick Maloney wins. You know, he is safe. Good job. He made the selfish choice and was rewarded. And then Jones got freaking flattened. He came in third in this open seat. Um, So, yeah, just another, you know, this New York redistricting cycle has just created some really vicious Democratic infighting. And that's another one of those emblematic situation. Well, it's also, you know, th- this this shows something and you know, we have spent so much time in recent years t- rightly talking about how the representatives should not choose their voters. Voters should choose their representatives. Just as a fundamental thing, the people who are running should not be in charge of you know, writing the district lines to ensure they win or ensure their party wins, all that kind of stuff. Shouldn't be political. You should take the politics out of it. That is mostly true. But what happened in New York shows that it is not always true. It's not completely true. And what we, so and what I mean by that is you had I don't know, I don't remember exactly the background. Um, but the person they chose, I think it's fair to say that I don't think they had a political. They didn't have a political axe to grind. This person came at it with a staunch belief that districts should be, um, what is the word exactly? Uh, you know, squares basically, right? They shouldn't be wiggly and have all these lines and all this kind of stuff. They should be compact and kind of like there's just one area and that area votes. But as Kate said, that's not how actual demography works. You have, you know, historic, uh, and not just historic, you know, you have communities in the city. There are different places where different ethnic communities, sort of cultural communities exist. So if you just come in with like a cookie cutter and just kind of cut through that, that's, um, you know, that cuts through the kind of the existing realities of, of, of how those places are actually structured. At the same time, you can make an argument that, you know, the, 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 the representatives in those two districts, you know, those two districts had representatives they liked. And they were deprived of voting for their representative. Well, how, how does that work? 
I mean, I'm not saying that can never happen. That does happen. But at a, at a, at a basic level, there are these other there are these other contending priorities that have validity to them mm-hmm. that you, you know, if you have a, you know, a, a uh, predominantly Dominican neighborhood in a, in a, you know, somewhere in Queens or somewhere in Brooklyn, that you should try to keep that in one district, right? Because that's one community as opposed to kind of, you know, divide it up between three districts because it makes sense for your squares. I'm not saying it's the only thing. Obviously, there's a lot of different you know, a lot of different moving parts there. Or that other point of kind of like, okay, you could draw them differently, but this district has this representative. They elect this person. This other district has a representative. If you don't have to, isn't there an argument for kind of allowing those people to have their, the person they've already voted for? And this, it obviously wasn't great for Democrats, but as you say, it kind of just sliced through the whole politics of the city in ways that it's at least worth considering that our belief that politics should have no role of should have no role in redistricting is not an absolute. At least at the margins, there are some complexities there. I think there are some really easy questions to answer about some about redistricting, and then some legitimately complex ones, like you're saying. I mean, you can also think of the case of like multiracial coalitions, right? Which is where maybe there aren't enough black voters to sway the vote, but, you know, say black voters and this Asian American population tend to vote the same and together they make up enough of the vote share to actually have a powerful say. There have been a lot of cases um, around that kind of coming up through the, the VRA lately, but that's another tricky case where maybe that doesn't fit into a square, but it brings up the question of, is it sometimes worth kind of keeping the political stuff in mind and manipulating the borders such to give people more voting power? You know, I mean, you could see the debates on either side of that. And it is it does kind of play into this question of do you just cut it into a grid? Do you try to keep these communities together? I mean, it's some of these questions are definitely, I think, difficult and can have legitimate arguments. Yeah, I think as in many cases, how you redistrict is a complex question for all the reasons we're describing. Um, what I think was bad about this is that it shouldn't have been left to the quirk of some academic who just really believes in compact districts, right? I, I don't even have the sense that the judge even, even it wasn't that the judge said, ah, oh, I'm, I'm a compact district man. <laughs> I got to find a con- compact district ideologue. They just found some guy, some political scientist somewhere. And it happened that this is what he believed. Well, that's a pretty random thing. You know, that's a pretty random factor to have such a, a big effect. I think what it comes down to is that there are a range of, you know, a whole other issue is some people believe that districting should prioritize competitive districts mm-hmm. because you want you want a lot of participation you want a lot of turnover well is i mean I, there's an argument for that but is that you know is that's it's not obvious that that's a good thing the point is there are a lot of complicated questions it is certainly the case that you shouldn't be doing it to make sure that even though your party only gets 50% of the votes, you get 75% of the seats all the time. 
Mm-hmm. That is clearly not okay. Right. And that is, uh, you know, that's what 90% of, um, that's what 90% of the politics of redistricting today is about. You know, a lot of these, these, these states in the Midwest where, you know, like Wisconsin, it's a 50-50 state, but the, the Republicans have a permanent supermajority mm-hmm. in the state legislature. Right. That doesn't make sense. I mean, and that's, I think, a really critical point because would anyone be weeping tears over New York becoming more competitive and maybe these incumbents having to like run hard races if that was the case in the whole country? I don't think so. I mean, you know, you're a politician. Like that sucks that your district became harder, but that is kind of, that's yeah, how the cookie crumbles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and frankly, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, even though it's been sort of, uh, it's been sort of painful to watch in some of these cases, it shakes things up. That's not bad. Yeah. That's not bad. Right. But, but the problem is, you know, I think the reason why there was legitimate reason for being upset that New York went down this way is just because that's not how it is. In most of the country, house races are almost never competitive. And like you say, Republicans in particular have so successfully just eked out strangleholds over states where the voting composition does not reflect it. And when that's your reality, New York Democrats not being able to squeeze out another four seats, like that's a real problem because then we're on the trail to Republicans just having kind of a permanent hold on the House of Representatives, which, you know, as we for a whole number of reasons, you know, that's a problem or at least having a severe edge with the House at all times. Yeah, no, it's it's it is it is as it is in every case. It's not fair if one if one side is is doing it the fair way and the other side is doing it the unfair way. It's just not. And that's and that's obvious. Yeah. So do you want to give us a little primer on Laura Loomis in Florida who had an electoral appearance last night? Yeah. So, so, well, and, and, and that brings us to Florida and, and one, and you would know more about, I want to just spend a moment on this. You, you know more about this than I, than I do, Kate. But so we have, as I mentioned before, we got these three states, New York, Florida, and Ohio, where Republicans had things fall in their favor pretty dramatically at the last minute. What's interesting is that there's some complexity. But in Florida and Ohio, in both cases, the state Supreme Court said, no, 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 you can't do this. This is this is too much. You're redistricting too much. And basically, in both cases, a mix of the governor and the legislature said, uh, no, sorry, and just did it anyway. Now, there's a little more complexity there, but not much. So at a, at a certain level, uh, they just they played harder hardball. They kind of overruled, and again, the details. And do you remember the the specifics here? With yeah. The, yeah. So, what was really interesting about Florida is that for a long time it was a back and forth between DeSantis and the really Republican legislature. Like that was where kind of the conflict originated because basically Florida Republicans wanted to gerrymander, but they wanted to gerrymander in a way that wouldn't kind of raise up red flags for the courts, which has been a real consideration in red states, you know, especially if you've got kind of a a red friendly court, you don't want to force them to act. You want to be just not egregious enough that they let it fly. Whereas DeSantis was like, nope, I want to do maximal aggression. And if that means kind of getting rid of a district that was specifically made to 
you know, kind of amplify the the voices of black voters, then we shall strike it, you know, to the point that the legislature passed a map that was kind of a, a mix of the two stances of what the legislature wanted, and what DeSantis wanted, but DeSantis vetoed it because it wasn't <laughs> aggressive enough. Right, right, so right. eventually the legislature just kind of said, okay, fine, uh, we'll pass your map. And they did it in a special session. So since that point, challenges abound, not least because this, this one district in the fifth or this one fifth district, which was specifically made to kind of correct for the diluting of black votes in Florida, which had been happening. So our latest news on that front is that the Florida Supreme Court, which has become super conservative because of these gubernatorial appointments, they said, we're not going to fast track the challenge to the map. No rush, you know, which means that they will probably be using the super aggressive DeSantis map, at least for the 2022 midterms, which in effect will give Republicans four more seats by taking one new one and then three seats that were previously like very competitive and just making them safely Republican. Right. And then and then what in in so so. It, it sounds like the court, the, the state Supreme Court in Florida has basically mm-hmm. said, all right, we're not we're probably not going to be able to OK this, but let's not rush. So let's just let's, yeah, let, exactly. Yeah, let's, let's drag our feet. You, yeah. Let's give you at least one cycle where you can have this <laughs> this 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 nutso map. And and what's always important for our listeners to remember here is that. You know, part we see people in exclusively partisan terms, but they're not only partisans, they're also incumbents. They want they want to stay in office. So yes, they want to maximize their their partisan power, but they're already in power. Mm-hmm. Re, you know, re, Republican hegemony in Florida is not in doubt. And the if you are a someone in a in a safe Republican seat, you don't want to worry about getting it really gummed up in the court, and suddenly someone some special masters, you know rewriting the districts and maybe your district gets rewritten a little. I mean, basically what happened in New York. Right. You don't want to have that. So that's that's why you would have um it's not like the uh you know these these Florida Republican legislate legislators were like nicer than DeSantis. <laughs> Just their interests are different. Okay. Yep. And then Ohio. So there you had the Supreme Court saying no a bunch of times. And then what how did that shake out? Yeah. So I guess What's happening in Ohio is interesting because they do have a redistricting committee and the Ohio Supreme Court is definitely more, you know, like sane than the Florida Supreme Court. So they invalidated a map in January enacted by the legislature and the governor um, saying, you know, it's just it's way too aggressive of a gerrymander. And then in March, the Republicans on the redistricting committee approved a replacement map that was like... (laughs) Basically the same, like mar- like barely fair- fairer than the one that was stu- uh, struck down. And we're talking 11 Republican leading seats and two Democratic leading seats in Ohio, which I think we all agree by this point is a red state, but it's not like Alabama, you yeah, know. It's, it's like a 55-45 state. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, you know, um, people kind of rank the uh, efficiency gaps of these maps, like how, which is a good measure of how tilted it is. That Florida one we were just talking about was an R plus 22, okay, a huge Republican gerrymander. That was DeSantis's map. This Ohio one is an, the one passed by the commission to kind of appease this the Supreme Court was a R plus 16, 
So <laughs> they're not really trying to make it very. And so, and, and basically that measure is the delta between if we just had a, a, a statewide race of who should control the legislature X and then how it's likely to turn out with these seats, that's that delta, correct? Right, right. Right, okay. Yeah, so basically, you know, the thing about this is that there's also like a challenge continues for the state Supreme Court, but it looks like it won't be wrapped up in time for the midterms. But the thing about Ohio that's kind of striking is this commission is a direct result of voters trying to pass reforms. Voters basically saying that we want this to be a less partisan process. And part of that is if the maps that the commission passes only pass along party lines, that they're only good for two years or two election cycles, rather. So then they'll have to be voted on again. Not particularly a great thing in Ohio, which is getting redder because, you know, a curtailed redistricting cycle will probably just mean more Republican seats, even just naturally by the way that the state is trending. But, you know, the egregious thing here is that the Republicans on the redistricting commission were just they were just kind of out of control. Like they kept blowing deadlines and not respecting the rules and, you know, kind of toying with what they could get away with. I mean, the whole thing was just, it it was such an exercise in bad faith. And I think it has been a recurring theme for us on this show that the voters will in ballot referendums is just becoming like, you don't even have to pretend to respect it in these Republican legislatures. You know, they just will do what they want and kind of override that. And this was a really a good example of that happening. Yeah, I do. I do. I I think that is something we are going to be seeing over the coming years, that that is a that is a disconnect that I don't think is sustainable over time. It, if 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 referenda, you know, there historically there are certain cases where you have a referendum and it just makes no sense, right? It's something that you can't actually do, but it catches fire with people. And then mm-hmm. the sort of the government's trying to kind of, you know, make it work and whatever. And it's, it's sort of one of the, one of the, um, one of the arguments against the referendum process. You know, one of the, one of, uh, one of the states that has a very, uh, you know, expansive uh, proposition referendum process is California, where I spent most of my childhood. And there, you've got this case where the often the refer the prop they're called propositions. There, often the propositions are written in not only are they not written in legislative language, they're not written in anything close to legislative language, and mm-hmm. and it can be hard sometimes to enact you know enact them into laws, but. You know, we had the case in Florida a couple of years ago, or maybe four years ago, with uh, felon disenfranchisement that they just basically ignored and mm-hmm. and just and just ignored it basically. And and if you have a functioning a functioning political system, the results of propositions and referenda should not be totally different from what the legislative and political process is creating. If there's a big differential, something's wrong. And uh, I think I think we're going to see that playing out because, um, again, I don't think that is, uh, I don't think that's sustainable over time, but we'll, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Okay. So this has been a, a long approach to come back to Loomis and Florida. Yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> sorry about that. Yes. Okay. No, so Laura, Lo- yeah, Laura Loomer is this, is, you know, basically kind of like a right wing troll, kind of alt right figure who's been bouncing around for, you know, the last six or seven years. Uh, she ran for 
She ran in a congressional primary either in 2020 or 2018, uh, didn't get that far. Um, she was running again, I think, against this guy Webster. Um, I think his name is representative down in Florida, um, pretty well entrenched, you know, uh, representative. This was not seen as like a big issue, but she came pretty close to beating him. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at, there was a point last night as the returns are coming in, they come in pretty quickly in Florida where it seemed like she might win. Um, and I think it ended up being like she got 44% of the vote. He got 51. Mm-hmm. Um, so he won, but I mean, it was a close call and, um, it's funny, sort of, you know, entirely predictably, she's saying voter fraud now and there needs to be a recount and stop the steal. And, you know, in, in, in fairness to her, in, in, in Republican terms, that's almost like too close to call. Right. I mean, 44 <laughs> yeah. percent. I mean, what is she, what what else is she going to do? Of course, she's going to say that. Um, So that was a, you know, close, close doesn't count. But, you know, she she got close. So you got that uh, ongoing uh, issue there with um you know, you can't even say they're mainstream Republicans anymore. You have, you know, one of the one of the funny thing is, you know, Matt Gates, who we all know is one of the sort of the most feral Trumpers in the House. He had a primary uh, challenger, but not like a more normal person. He had someone running, you know, notionally running against him from the Trumpian right. This guy's big uh, closing argument was that maybe Gates is the is the Mar-a-Lago leaker. (laughs) He betrayed Trump. Now, Gates like destroyed this guy. I think it's I think the result end result was like 60, 30 or something like that. But you just you know, you it's the process we've seen um, the process we've seen over, you know, really the last two decades that you just, you, you know, each new each new crop of you know republican extremists three cycles in they're going to be the sort of the rhinos <laughs> who are getting challenged by the the new uh, wackier people and in some ways you know w- what is um, one of the things that we're seeing in this sort of differential between seeming like the the democrats are going to win the senate seeming like they're probably going to lose the house a lot of that is that is that that crap's harder to pull off in a statewide race. You know, when you have a when you have a a non manageable constituency, when you can't write the you know draw the borders, when you've got some you know when you've got some liberal cities in the mix, not just rural areas, it's kind of hard. It, it's it's hard to to run those kind of people. Now in the Senate, you've got this extra issue where. In a number of these races, Donald Trump just decided someone was cool and made them the nominee, basically. I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, you have that's certainly the case in Georgia with Herschel Walker, certainly the case with uh, Met Met Oz in Pennsylvania. I mean, there is no universe in which either of those dudes would even be in the race, let alone the nominee, without just Donald Trump just deciding it. Right. Then you've got people like uh, uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio. He's not a creation of Trump. I mean, Trump did, I think, get him over the edge at the end by the by a late endorsement. Um, And then you've got this guy, Blake Masters, this kind of like, you know, incel chieftain from (laughs) from Arizona, this like complete weirdo who's like a product of of the uh, Peter Thiel you know, um, cinematic universe, right. Who's like running like 10 points behind Mark Kelly. 
in 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 Arizona. I mean, Mark Kelly was we're figuring like there's no chance he was going to get reelected. Right. I mean, he barely squeaks in uh, on the sort of the anti-Trump coattails. And and now he's he's like at 51 percent and Masters is like at 40 percent. You know, you, you, you run these kind of like lunatic people. States have been, you know, we haven't had a state, I think, what is it? Was Oklahoma or, I can't remember if it was Oklahoma or New Mexico. I think there was one state, maybe 1909. I can't remember. In any case, we haven't had long uh, new states with the exception of the non-continental uh, Hawaii and Alaska for a really long time. They haven't been gerrymandered in a really long time. They're old. Right. So you've got a lot of, you know, even in pretty conservative states or you've got a you've got a lot of different kinds of people there. And like, you know, Ohio, uh, uh, you know, Tim Ryan's really given J.D. Vance a run for his money. And I think everybody agrees that uh, J.D. Vance is, a, is is not a good candidate. I'm not saying he's too right wing. That's a separate issue. He he he's just not a good candidate. But, you know, but Ohio is a Republican state, so he has a good chance of uh, pulling it off. But that's always the difference between the House and the Senate. You you can't come up with your own districts. Yeah. I mean, and I think this hasn't we didn't talk about this on the pod last to happen in between. But um, McConnell gave this like <laughs> kind of shockingly serious or uh, candid statement about candidate quality uh you know he said that candidate quality has a lot to do with the outcome he said i think there's probably a greater likelihood than the house flips than the senate um you know we have a 50 50 senate and a 50 50 country you know blah 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 either it'll be either our side up slightly or their side up slightly but like wow that is quite an admission of failure to make as the Senate minority leader in what August before these midterms basically coming out and going on the record being like yeah this chamber might be out of hand <laughs> like that's kind it's, of stunning you know the the funny thing it, it, it is stunning and it's certainly you know the one thing like the one thing I think it most important for the Democrats right now in the house is for Democrats under to understand they can hold the house it's not impossible. They can hold the House, especially after what we saw last night. Now, am I saying it's likely? No, but it can happen. And you say that because you don't want people to become demoralized, right? Because you can have something that's possible, but if everybody thinks they're going to lose, they will lose. So it's a, it's, it's a striking thing for McConnell to say, because he's basically saying like, yeah, we fucked up. <laughs> we're, lose, we're losing. So like, that's a bummer for people who are, you know, trying to, if you're a candidate, trying to get someone uh, pumped for your campaign. But you know, even if he is evil, Mitch McConnell's a smart guy, and he's he's a he's he's a canny and sly guy. And what I saw in that comment was basically, "Fuck you to Trump and everybody <laughs> who likes Trump because you lost us the Senate." <laughs> so it wasn't like an admission of like I messed up. It's that you idiots blew it for us. Good job, yeah, good job, guys. Right, so. You know, there you go. And it's funny because, I, you know, look, um, a lot of uh, th there's uh, there was a poll that came out, you know, like a reputable poll that came out in the last few days showing J.D. Vance back ahead. But generally speaking, yeah. they've showed they've showed Tim Ryan um, ahead. I think I'm not convinced that that one poll changes things. But in states like Ohio, you've got a lot of of partisan muscle memory that will probably um 
bring uh, uh, JD Vance over the you know over the hump in the in the final analysis. But if you look at just who's ahead right now, like Republicans are behind in every competitive Senate race. They're even they're even a little behind. I think in North Carolina, mm-hmm. right? And 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 was it North Carolina? There was at least one poll showing Val Demings tied with Marco Rubio. Now. I'm not expecting Val Demings to, to beat Marco Rubio, but like even in races that are supposed to be totally safe, they're, you know, they're, they're at least close. So, um, you know, a candidate, it, but even that it's, it's, it's not, yes, candidate quality matters a lot, but it's not just that. If you can't control who the voters are, it becomes a lot harder. Totally. Right? It becomes a lot harder. It's as simple as that. Yep. Okay. Let's jump to this question that we got um, yeah, from it's a really Christopher. Good one. Yeah. So he says uh, in a recent podcast episode, we kind of talked about whether or not Liz Cheney might run in the Republican presidential primary and, you know, the, the pros and cons of that. And he asks, why would they let her do that? I grant she could find the money, no problem, but it seems weird to me that Trump would want to face her and her criticisms. And why wouldn't the people who run the primary just do what Trump wants? Or even if somehow he's in the race with other people, you know, DeSantis or whoever, I can't see her being allowed on stage with those people. Um, I assume the GOP sets the rules and even if excluding her required a fairly flagrant violation of prior rules, that hardly seems like something they'd have a problem with. What am I missing? Uh, here's what you're missing. I think for Liz, if Liz Cheney runs for president in the Republican primaries in 2024, what you're describing is more a feature than a bug. Let's play this out this way. Um, they could certainly, uh, the Republican party and the Republican candidates are in charge of like who's on debate stage. No question about that. Okay. In terms of who is allowed to run in a primary, that's a lot more difficult. If Trump is not if it is not really contested, they could just not hold primaries, right? If if everybody just decides Trump's the nominee, they can just not they can they can do that. I believe they I believe they, they did. did did do yeah. that in in 2020. But if he does have challengers, primaries are partly run by the parties, but they're also run by the state voting apparatus. Okay. You can't have a primary where Ron DeSantis needs to get such and such number of signatures to get on the ballot and Mike Pence does and, you know, whoever else and just Liz Cheney can't be on the ballot. You can't you can't do that because, again, these are not strictly partisan elections. They are administered by the state. Right. So so you you just can't really do that. Now, what they could do is just say, she's not really a Republican and we're not letting her on the debate stage. But I guarantee you, she will be outside of the of the convention center where they're holding it every single time. And the whole debate process will become this thing of, of, of Liz Cheney out there denouncing Donald Trump and, you know, crapping on him. And why isn't, um, why is Donald Trump afraid to appear on the same stage as Liz Cheney. So, yes, they they can try to freeze her out and if they choose to, they can they can definitely freeze her out of debates. There's no question about that. There's no, you know, constitutional issues uh, with debates. They can do those any way they want. They can't really if they're having a contested primary, they cannot really keep her off the ballot. That is 
I think, unless at the margins, basically impossible. Again, because they're administered by the state. Okay, that's that's that is that is a big thing in states where there are primaries as as opposed to caucuses. And you know, many states have it where uh, you know independents or even Democrats can cross over. So even though we know that Liz Cheney is dead to most Republicans, it's not at all beyond the beyond. Um, possibility that she could consistently be getting 10, 15, even 20% of the vote in a Republican primary. She's not going to get 1%. There are there are Republic, Republicans there, there, who don't like Trump. There definitely are. And again, there's certainly independents who might cross over. So yes, they probably will try to do all of those things. But the process of doing all of those things will become such a glaring issue that I think that in itself will accomplish much of what Liz Cheney would be trying to accomplish, which would be to damage Donald Trump. Um, it's not like Liz Cheney thinks she's going to be the Republican nominee. So that's that's my basic sense. It is, yes, of course they will try, but it is much, much harder than um, than you might think. And to the extent that they can easily do things with debates, again, that makes the whole that's going to make the whole debate kind of about Liz Cheney, mm -hmm. which defeats the purpose for Republicans and for Trump. I'm just like imagining her, you know, how the State of the Union always has the rebuttal from the, the opposing party, just like you know, add a little stand up with her mics outside the convention center. And then it's like split screen debate. And then you have Liz Cheney outside. Yeah. I mean, again, she's, she's, we, we don't think she's gonna, she's going to um, be the nominee, but it is quite possible because of the dynamics that I described that she could be coming in second or third. If there's, if there's, you know, if there's eight or nine Republicans running. Right. If she's if she's getting, say, five percent, upwards of 10 percent of, act, you know, actual registered Republicans, which I don't think is impossible, um, plus crossovers in a in a in a um, in a divided field, she could be getting 15 percent, which could be, you know, coming in third. And then like it, it, it just creates chaos, which is what she wants to do. Right. You know, you could say productive chaos, but chaos. <laughs> she yeah. wants to stink up the room. Yep. All right. So uh, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off with the promo code TPM at Grady's Cold Brew.com. That's Grady's Cold Brew.com, promo code TPM. All right. See you guys next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 